And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the, right, uh, the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when this, they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was, was more than 40 years old. May the Lord apply the teaching of his word to our hearts. You may be seated. You know, the book of Acts is the unfolding of the church, right? It's that whole transition from the Gospels and what Christ actually accomplished in real time. And then we have the beginnings of the church. And so here we are in these, uh, you know, embryotic stages of the creation of the church. So that means that we're going to run into a bunch of firsts, the first time that the church has experienced different things. And in Acts chapter 4, in these 22 verses that Brandon just read, what we have is the first time that the church that's just coming into shape experiences persecution. Now, when I talk about persecution or you hear the word persecution in um, the context of the church, I would suspect that where your mind goes is you know, that phrase that we use, the persecuted church. In fact, in the pastoral prayer this morning, um, as, as 
uh, as is our habit to pray for the persecuted church. I prayed for the country of Syria and, and some things that are going on there. And in fact, uh, in our prayer service later, we're going to uh, pray for um, another country um, in that prayer ser- uh, in the prayer service. And that's where our mind tends to go when we think of the persecuted church. Um, you know, we think about people being arrested. We think about people that have endured beatings for Christ. Uh, people that have even gone the full distance and have been martyred for the name of Christ and for their faith. And that unquestionably falls squarely in the category of being persecuted. But I would suggest that even within our American culture today, that the Christian that lives a decidedly and committedly biblical life in America is enduring persecution, that there is mistreatment that takes place. And you need not even be obnoxious about it. You don't have to go out onto a street corner with a bullhorn or hold up signs to receive some sort of pushback from the world. In fact, I would even say that we are so saturated by the evil one's tactics that we lose track of the fact that we're in it. You know, the whole frog in the pot thing. And at some point, when you are committed to living in a way that honors the Lord, you can't help but look around and say, does anyone else realize that this pot is getting a little too hot? Just a couple of days ago, my wife is looking for some candy to bring uh, as prizes for the uh, children's Sunday school, and she tells me, well, I guess I'm not going to buy Skittles because they say that they're loaning, right there on the display, they're loaning their rainbow to, to the LGBTQ community for the month. Because our government has established that, the, that, we need, that this is the, the month to recognize that. Just yesterday, while at an open house for one of our high school graduates, I'm visiting with a very good friend of ours that they've committed, I mean, their lives have been consumed by Disneyland. They're kind of known as being Disneyland people. And I'm standing there talking to him, and he was telling me how he had to search through his clothes to find something that he could wear that did not represent Disneyland because of choices that 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 company and what they want to represent and the messages that they want to push. And so he's forced to make decisions for himself about that. In our uh, prayer service later today, one of the things that we are going to pray about is, is that Arizona State Bill 1026 is going to pass, which puts restrictions on adult businesses so that it prohibits them from, sex, from having sexually explicit shows or performance in the presence of minors. I mean, that's the point that we're in, that we have to legislate, we have to put into law, hey, you can't perform some sort of a sexually explicit show in front of a child. That's the world that we're in. We're soaked in this stuff. And we're so used to it that I can read these things and nobody's even really shocked by it. And yet this is the world we live in. And I'm saying that 
I'm not, what I'm not telling you is that, well, this is the candy you should or shouldn't eat, or this is the theme park you should or shouldn't go to. I'm not saying that we should rise up against these and, you know, take a stand. What I'm saying is that because the world is coming at us, at Christians, with these unbiblical, with these, with these tactics that are orchestrated by the evil one himself through leaders of our own country, it puts the Christian in the position to make decisions, just like some of the people that I just mentioned. Decisions have to be made. In our country, or in our culture today, Hollywood basically treats the Christian as being some kind of uninformed or unintelligent person. Politicians make comments, you see it on the news cycle, on the news shows, that essentially communicate that Christians are blind and bigoted. Professors in our universities will say, well, come on, Christians, and you people that need that crutch and believe those things, you're narrow-minded, you're naive. That's, this is, this is the world that we currently live in. And so the question that I believe that our passage answers today is how do we live in that kind of a world? What kind of assurances can we have when we look around us and go, what is going on? What am I supposed, you know, how am I supposed to feel about this? What assurances can I have that God is in control and that we're not just going to somehow be swallowed up in this revolution of sin. Because the fascinating thing, when you look at what's going on in Acts chapter 4, is that the culture leaders, the, you know, to use, you know, terms that are a lot more modern, the, uh, the, you know, the, the virtue warriors, the culture warriors, the people that kind of decide for you this is what's right this decade or this year or even this week. Like, hey, this is what's virtuous now that was never virtuous before, but we've decided this is virtuous now. That was present during, these, the, during Acts 4 in these initial stages of the church. Now, we are not ruled by priests and a captain of the temple and Sadducees and um, other rulers that they were, and yet at the same time, they had these groups of people that served as cultural leaders just like we have today. And what's the same then as it is now is the fact that the way that you get sideways with a cultural leader, with the people that decide what is virtuous within any given society, is to speak the truth of the gospel. If you, if, if you want to be a thorn, if you want to draw attention to yourself and be a problem, then you speak the truth of the gospel. And so when you look at Acts chapter 4, at verse 1, what is it that Peter and John are doing? As they were speaking to the people, so they're speaking to the people, they're not... Try, they're not fomenting a rebellion. They're not putting a group together to charge any government buildings. They are speaking to the people. And what are they doing? In verse 2, it says, they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That's what they're doing. They're going about telling the truth of the gospel 
of Jesus Christ and where salvation can be found to people. That's what they're doing. And so what we find is this series of tactics that the world takes that I suggest were the same then as they are now of how the world responds to the truth of the gospel message going out. And what they do, it's predictable, is they level accusations, they ramp it up to adding pressure, public, formalized pressure, and then they take it up the next notch to threats. And that's exactly what unfolds here. And so my plan is to point that out for you in these verses and then also to provide for you under each of those categories two ways that we can see that we can actually have assurance in the middle of those things happening. So here we have Peter and John. They were speaking to the people. They were teaching the people. And they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And this shows you how, even though those people, the rulers of that age, had these titles that seem, that are very religious, right? They're high priests. They are uh, captain of the temple. They are Sadducees. These are full-time religious authorities. But we know for a fact that they were not interested in religious truth or just in truth because what Peter and John were proclaiming, we know, is just right here in the last verse of chapter 3. So just look up one verse. This is what they were talking about. God having raised up his servant, because remember, we just read that they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So uh, chapter 3, 26. God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. They are proclaiming a message to the people with the intent of blessing them and turning them from their wickedness. If you are a religious leader, how could you possibly be opposed to a message that is being proclaimed as a blessing and to turn people from their wickedness? In fact, what is the response they get in verse, chapter 4, verse 2? They're greatly annoyed. They're annoyed at this. That here are these men that are proclaiming the resurrection of Christ from the dead that is intended to bless them and to turn them from the wickedness. And the reason that they're annoyed is because they're not really interested in the truth. No, they are, and we'll end up seeing it in later chapters, it's a matter of jealousy And it's a matter of uh, self-preservation. Because this is what happens. You know, this whole concept of persecution, of being mistreated, this is when it takes place. Anytime the gospel message bumps up against unbelief. Truth of Scripture, truth of Christ, runs into unbeliever or, or unbelief you're going to get sparks, you're going to get conflict, you're going to get persecution. And the first level of that persecution that we see in this account here is that they are being accused. It says right here in the first, uh, first five verse, or first four verses, rather, 
that after they're annoyed, it says there in verse 3, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it's already e- evening. So an accusation has been laid. They haven't done any actual investigation, investigating at this point. They're not, as I mentioned, interested in the truth. There's just an accusation that has taken place. And here is the first thing that I want you to know or that I believe that you can draw assurance from as it relates to some kind of persecution or when you are being accused of something in the name of Christ is that you should not be surprised. There is assurance in knowing, hey, when I present the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to somebody and somebody either the person you're talking to or or that's hearing it, actually accuses you being narrow-minded, of being bigoted, of being ignorant, you shouldn't be surprised. So there's assurance just in the fact that you know that it's coming. It's amazing to see how unifying the gospel message is. And I don't mean you know, like the Psalm, uh, uh, what is it, Psalm 33, you know, the, the, the oil that runs down on the beard of Aaron, and, and we're all unified in Christ. No, I'm talking about how unifying the gospel message of Christ is for the people that are opposed to it. Because what you have here is a list of people. You have priests uh, that presumably are, are, are uh, probably Pharisees. You've got a captain of the temple, which essentially is the chief of police for the temple grounds. You have Sadducees, which Sadducees Um, believed exclusively in the Torah. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, not the remainder of it, which landed them on the conclusion that there's no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. And then uh, part of the group here, we reread later down in verses like five and six here, uh, you have Annas, the high priest. Annas is in power as the high priest, but it was Caiaphas. The Romans deposed Caiaphas, And Annas, his son-in-law, is in power, but the people, the Jews themselves, still recognized Caiaphas. Do you see all the politics that are at play? These people hate each other. They're at each other's throats. And politically, there's a lot of power play going on here uh, as far as ruling and reigning. But as soon as someone presents the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a very unifying thing that takes place. All of a sudden, they like to come together and say, well, that is dead wrong. And so we should not be surprised when those things take place. When the gospel comes in contact with unbelief, it will result in persecution. And so in 1 John uh, chapter 3, verses 12, and, uh, starting at verse 12, it says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. See, righteousness was very close. In fact, maybe they had bunk beds with evil. And the evil one then persecuted the righteous one and killed him. And then in verse 14, it says, we know, or or, uh, I'm sorry, verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So do not be surprised when the world hates you. So that's the first way that you can actually gain some assurance in the face of persecution is don't be surprised. And actually, I'll read one more verse out of, uh, or a couple more verses uh, right here out of 1 Peter chapter 4. 
Verses 12 to 14, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So we shouldn't be surprised. We should actually have the opportunity to even rejoice in the fact that we endure some persecution or that we've been accused of something. When someone says that you're dumb or you know, that you're narrow-minded or you're bigoted because you stand on what Scripture says, well, if that's what God's Word said, then I believe it, then you are in a good place and you shouldn't be surprised by that. The second thing in the face of being accused is that remember that the gospel message is not for nothing. Look at what we read there back in Acts chapter 4 and in verse 4. Notice the but. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So even though you're being accused, you can, while being accused, have assurance gain some peace in thinking, you know what? While somebody's pointing their finger at me and wagging it at me, I don't need to worry about it because God's word is going forth and I have no idea what's going to happen. In fact, when we think about the parable of the sower, absolutely, when that seed goes out, you got your three bad soils. Satan's going to pick one away. You You got your rocky soil. You got the weeds that are going to choke one out. But there is one soil, the good soil, and it says, who heard the word and accepted it and bore fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. You do not know who is hearing you proclaim the truth of the gospel message, who is watching you live a life that is consistent with the word of God, and if that, in fact, is going to result in fruit that bears 30, 60, or 100-fold. Nobody's bringing that report back to you, but you can take assurance that that's exactly how God works. When you are faithful, you impact other people, and you should take assurance in that. When they are witnessing, you don't know who else is witnessing you being accused. Praise God that they see you being accused, and they're watching how you respond to being accused. The second tactic that we see and that is described here in verses 5 to 12, the second tactic is that uh, what the world wants to do, what the adversary wants to do through the world is to apply public pressure. Look at verse 7. When they had set them in the midst, so already they're setting the stage physically, logistically, they are taking Peter and John and they're putting them in the hot seat. They're right there. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? It's a tactic. This is a power play. We shouldn't be surprised that the world has that unifying effect, and when they see the truth of the gospel going out, they actually coalesce, they unify, and then they ramp up the pressure. If you thought, I know the phrase is new when we say cancel culture, but that is nothing new. That's what's happening here. This whole group that is listed of these religious leaders are trying to find a way 
to formally, they're coming together, putting Peter and John in their midst, and they're finding, uh, they're trying to find a way to cancel them. They are the virtue warriors of their day. They put them on center stage and they turn up the heat by asking them a very pointed question. And so this is what we see is that the first reason that you can have assurance, even when the pressure is being turned up, is that you have nothing to be ashamed of. You stand on the cornerstone. That's what it says right here in verse 11. Look at what, um, look at how Peter responded. We're starting at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you all, uh, to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing before you well, this Jesus is the stone that, the re- that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. The truth is true. There is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. True then, true now. So when you are being pressured... If there is a more formalized effort to call out the Christian and say, essentially, what gives you the right, dummy, you bigoted, narrow-minded person? Who do you even think you are to make that kind of judgment? Ultimately, you get to land on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and say, well, there is no salvation Uh, There is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So there is assurance. You're like, well, you guys can add all the pressure you want, but I'm standing on the cornerstone. I am immovable. And then the second thing, the second way that we can gain assurance when that pressure is turned up, when the world uh, really uh, dials in the pressure to a Christian is to know that those people are going to be brought to justice. Liars and slanderers will be brought to justice. Because we frequently think about the concept of Christ being the cornerstone as, and rightfully so, as that foundational piece of the church upon which the entire church is built, right? Like that is the strength, that is the immovable piece, which is point one under why we should be assured under pressure. But the second reason is look what else the cornerstone does. Do you remember in the parable of the wicked tenants? Um, One of those accounts is actually in Luke chapter 20, and I'm going to read to you verses... uh, verses 16 to 18. But in Luke 20, there are the wicked tenants, and Jesus is telling the parable, and he's saying, hey, you know, these wicked tenants, they're going to be, they're going to be thrown out. And then watch what happens after they're thrown out. So this is Luke 20, verses 16 to 18. He will come, so this is Jesus in the parable talking about the, the master. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, 
What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Christ as the cornerstone not only serves as our foundation, and that not only can we gain assurance from the fact that we are standing on the truth, we also can gain assurance when we are faced with public pressure. We gain assurance because Christ is going to be the judge of all liars and slanderers. And we need to remember that it would be better to be guilty in the court of public opinion and innocent before the judgment seat of Christ than enjoy some temporary acceptance for today's version of uh, virtue and, um, and then be ashamed one day before Christ the judge. It's, uh, I'm sure you know the hymn on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And that's the second um, point of assurance that we can see under pressure. The third tactic that the world uses is then once they've accused, once they have increased the pressure, then they turn directly to threatening. And really, if you think about this objectively, it kind of makes sense. You know, when you look at this account here in, um, in Acts chapter 4, that's what happens here in verses uh, 17 through 21. What, what do they do? It says, uh, but in order that it may spread no further among the people. This is, so these are the religious leaders conferring together. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must be the judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. So we see this next level of threatening, and when you realize in there that it says that they were astonished and that they had nothing to say in opposition, you only have two options. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is presented to someone, they really only have two options. They submit to it or they fight against it. And if it gets to the point of threatening, then you actually can gain assurance even though you are being threatened. And the first way that you can have assurance when being threatened by the world is that the world's threats are feckless. Anyone ever use that word? Feckless. They're futile. It's an emperor has no clothes scenario. It's an all bluster and no muster. It's an all hat and no cattle. Peter and John have the corner on truth here because they are standing on the truth that is the cornerstone. The threats have no teeth. Threaten away. What do you got? They can do absolutely nothing. 
I'm going to read a, a couple of verses out of Psalm 118, which was our call to worship this morning. In Psalm 118, verses 5 to 9, it says, so you can imagine that if you're being threatened, it might be a little stressful, right? Listen to this. Psalm 118, verse 5. Out of my distress, I called on Yahweh, and Yahweh answered me and set me free. Yahweh is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Yahweh is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in princes. This is why we can have assurance when we, being, when we are being threatened, because the world's threats are absolutely futile. The second reason, the second way that we can be assured even when the world is threatening us is that it actually brings clarity. Good things happen. When there are threats, you know, there's, this thing's starting to get real. When it gets to that point and people are actually leveling threats, or, God forbid, you know, there are laws that are being codified that would um, prohibit what God requires or that requires what God prohibits. As if these things were to come to pass, what that actually does and that we can take assurance in is that God is using that to bring clarity. These are what you might call Joshua 24, 15 opportunities. Choose this day whom you will serve. When it's laid out there, this world that we're soaked in and we're saturated in, like I said, you don't have to be obnoxious about it. All you have to do is say, no, I'm actually, in my marriage, I'm going to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, and my wife's going to submit. What? Can you say that word in this culture? My wife is going to respect her husband. I'm going to raise my children in the, um, in, the, in the admonition and in the instruction of the Lord. I can't even imagine what it's like being a teenager or a college student in today's culture where you're faced with these things. And as soon as you res- uh, get accused, as soon as they, uh, you're, uh, the enemy wants to ramp up the pressure, as soon as there is a threat, what is the first thing that they go to in that, in that world? social media. It's like instantly publicized. This jumps from accusation to pressure to threats, all within a few characters. That's the world that we're in. And so we have young men and young women that are instantly faced with all of these things, accusation, pressure, and threats within a few characters of a tweet, of a post. And so we need to help remember that in the face of threats, not only are they futile, but these things actually do bring clarity. And the perfect response is how Peter responds here in verse 19, uh, or Peter and John. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It 
it reminds me of that account where Jesus heals the man who was born blind. And you remember, religious leaders of that time, same thing. They went crazy. They're like, what's going on here? What, what happened? They questioned the guy's parents. The parents kind of got scared. And they're like, ah, we don't, we don't know. He's an adult. You go ask him yourself. So they're like, fine. They march over and they find the guy. You tell us what happened, right? Accusations, pressure, threats. And what did he say? I don't know. All I can tell you, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That is just a spectacular response. It's in one of our most famous and frequently sung hymns, right? Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. It's just, it comes down to being that simple. And Peter and John do the same thing. When they're getting this formalized threat aimed at them, they say, okay, well, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. So when it comes down to it, you have the opportunity to just speak the truth and say, look, I Maybe I can't answer every one of your questions, certainly not to the, to, the, uh, to the degree that you would like an answer, but I can tell you this much. I was dead and now I'm alive. I was guilty of sin. I am no longer because of the work of Christ. Now, whether you, you're, you take that up with God, I'm telling you the truth. This is about the resurrection of Christ. Here. And that's what Peter and John do right here as well. And so actually, the threats bring clarity. And I just want to point out as well, this t- kind of ties to that one of those earlier points. Look at verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. And look how that verse ends. For all were praising God for what had happened. We're right back to, you, you don't always know who's seeing you being threatened. And you don't know what people are watching when you're being threatened. So if you're down to the point you're like, look, let me just read a verse to you. And, that, you know, this is, this is what I've got. And it's truth. It may, in fact, result in all we're praising God for what had happened. So tying this back to the... Um, that paragraph that we read out of the confession, I encourage you to ask yourself, is there any way possible to use the language, the verbiage that was used in that uh, paragraph in the confession out of um, chapter 18? Is there any way possible that you are vainly deceived or that you have presumptuously believed that you are in the favor of God and in a state of salvation? If there is any chance whatsoever, when you look at your life and you go, is my hope in Christ, do I endure any kind of pushback from the world or do I find that I pretty much just fall in line with what the world is serving up? If culture's acceptance, if what they say are good deeds is what you are using to think that you're going to get by on Judgment Day, then your hope is in vain. Remember, the truth of the gospel, when it comes in contact with unbelief, results in persecution. Varying levels, but that's what happened. So my question to you is, 
is persecution in this sense a part of your Christian experience? Does it happen at all in any way with you? Because being a Christian does not come without a cost. That's what we're talking about. Christianity bumps up against the world, and there is a cost to be paid. Are you paying any kind of a cost? Does the world even realize that you're a Christian? Are you positive that you are a Christian, which can only be accomplished through repentance and faith? For those that are confident, that know exactly what I'm talking about, that have experienced this kind of versions of mistreatment because you stand on the truth of the word of God, when you're accused, don't be surprised. Remember that it's not for nothing. You have no idea the impact that you're having on someone else. When you're pressured, when you're in the world's crosshairs, You need not be ashamed because you are standing on the truth of the cornerstone. And by the way, that cornerstone is the same one that's going to smash the liars and the slanderers of God's word. And when you are threatened, remember that they are all bark and no bite. I mean, ultimately, they can take your life, whatever. They can't take your soul. They're powerless. And also, as this world is going nuts and, and all that shifting sand of, of virtue that, that seems to change by the day, it actually brings clarity because when Christians stand still as all of those cultural shifts are taking place, it actually bring, brings clarity and people see that. Lines are drawn when God's children remain loyal and his people see it and they praise him. The last thing I just want to point out here is that final verse in um, Acts 4, verse 22. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The verse is essentially demonstrating how real the healing was. This goes back to the fact that whole concept of the cornerstone. There was no, these guys could do nothing about it accusations, pressure, and threats could do nothing about it because this man, he was more than 40 years old, and he can say, just like the other man that was uh, healed from his blindness, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And we can praise God for that as well. Join me in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that there is both... um, that we can have peace when being persecuted and that there is purpose in persecution. Lord, help us. Help us not to be surprised. Help us to be prepared to give a hope for the defense, a defense for the hope that is within us. Help us to remember about Christ, the cornerstone, and that that cornerstone is also going to bring justice and that the world has nothing of substance that they can truly do to bring against us and that actually all of this brings clarity. Thank you, Lord, for your holy word. May it work itself out in Christian living and in proclaiming the gospel in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.